the only way in which shame can be covered by the shame coverer, Jesus Christ. And that's what he's come to do. The resurrection of the dead means you don't have to live in your shame. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this message from Soli Church. Our prayer is that this message would be a blessing and resource for you. But no sermon or podcast can ever take the place of being connected to a local church. If you're in or around the Ventura County area, we would love for you to join us. You can find when and where we're meeting by visiting solelychurch.com. S-O-L-I church.com. Rest in Jesus, Christian. Please open your Bibles on this resurrection morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And our passage this morning, verses 29 through 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. Hear the word of God. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And what gain, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come to this passage that appears so esoteric and so challenging. And and yet we need the truth that is here. Your spirit breathed this out. And Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church for a reason, to bolster his argumentation and defense of the resurrection of the dead and to lead the Corinthian church to practice resurrection together as a church. And so, Lord, I pray as we are gathered to here today as a church that you would take the word that Paul himself gave to the Corinthian church and that you would bring it home to us today and that this word would shape and form the very practice of resurrection life that we have together as a church in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Every Lord's Day at Soli Church and every Lord's Day around the world, the church confesses in the creed this, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And because this is true, because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, the church is. No resurrection of Jesus, no church 
of Jesus. Because Jesus has been raised, Paul planted churches. Paul spent his entire life in ministry traveling around the Mediterranean world suffering so that he might plant churches for the glory of God. And those churches that Paul planted, not only do they depend upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are communities of resurrection life. The church is an outpost of the future kingdom of God in the present. The church is a site of resurrection life on earth. The church is a theater of the new creation set within the present evil age. The church is the location where we practice resurrection life together because Jesus has been raised from the dead. But in the church at Corinth, we meet a dysfunctional church. We meet a church that might resemble ourselves, maybe. We meet a dysfunctional church in part because of what verse 12 says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Church, listen to me. This was not people outside the church saying there is no resurrection of the dead. These were people inside the Corinthian church, inside the Corinthian community, people who were a part of the body of Christ. Some of them were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And they were saying this in the church. And what was happening is because there were some in the church who were saying there is no resurrection of the dead, the church was being led away in two directions, led into dysfunction in two directions. One, in the confessional belief that Jesus was raised from the dead, because if there is no resurrection of the dead, that means Christ is not raised from the dead. On the other side, it is also leading them away from practicing resurrection life together. And if you look at verse 34, Paul's trying to wake them up. Verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Paul is trying to wake them up from their spiritual hangover by defending the resurrection of Jesus and what the church's life ought to be like because Jesus is raised from the dead. And so he has been defending before our passage. He has been given a series of defenses for the resurrection of Jesus. And now when we pick it up in verse 29, he continues to give two more defenses for the resurrection of the dead. And then the implications of that for the life of the church. And he gives two reasons more, two more reasons why they should believe in the church at Corinth that the dead are to be raised. The first is Christian baptism, verse 29, and the other is cruciform suffering, verses 30 and following. So let's look at Paul's first defense 
In verse 29, he is using Christian baptism as a reason why it is that those who no longer believe in the resurrection are not really holding true because why then are some people receiving a certain kind of baptism if the resurrection is not true? So clearly I've chosen the easiest verse in the Bible to preach on. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Baptism for the dead. What is he doing? There, listen, it's easy. There are only over 200 explanations for this verse in the history of the church. Only 200. And aren't you glad I'm here to fix it for you? I'll give you the one and you won't need to worry about it anymore, all right? So obviously, in a sermon, I cannot answer weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of exegetical work going through to give this an answer, okay? So I'm going to just kind of give you a little bit of, of how I got to where I got, give you what I have, uh, because I certainly cannot take you uh, on the whole journey. But I will give you a little bit um, of it. The first is this. Uh, as a church, we do not believe or confess in what the Latter-day Saints believe or confess, that living people can receive baptism now on behalf of people who have died and gone on. That is not what this verse is teaching, okay? So we do not hold to that as a church. The church confessionally does not hold to that. The church historically does not hold to that. We as a church do not hold to that. And that's absolutely what Paul is not talking about here. So it's not, we don't have to worry about it veering off into that direction because Paul is not speaking about that here uh, anyways. And so we don't need to worry about the LDS doctrine because it is a doctrine that is a misuse of this particular passage here. The conclusion that I have come to is that Paul is, though, speaking about Christian baptism. He actually is speaking about the baptism of believers. And let me give you a few reasons why, and then I'll show you this. Um, the first is, I, I believe that Paul is actually using something to defend the resurrection that some were practicing, okay? It's just, they were practicing it, it was true. Um, and Paul is not, I don't believe Paul would be using something that would be heretical to defend the resurrection of the dead. So that's my first thought is, he's using something that they are aware of um, to defend something as important as the resurrection. Secondly, the Greek word that's used in this verse, huper, has a number of different meanings. And so the translation of the scriptures here uh, can be challenging, which is why the verse itself is challenging. Third reason is Paul would have had to change who the dead are here um, in that argumentation to say this is baptism for those who are already dead on the other side. Um, but the dead here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has been consistent all the way through his argument that these are the dead in Christ. The people who he is speaking about in verse 29 are the same people that he's been speaking about all throughout chapter 15. And those people who have died, they're already in Christ Jesus. Jesus, they don't need to be put in Christ Jesus post-mortem. They don't need to be put in Christ Jesus after they've died. We're talking here about those who are already dead in Christ, and those who are dead in Christ are going to be raised from the dead someday. And so this is really important for me to summarize this and say this as clearly as I can. I do not believe that Paul is using as a defense of the resurrection 
the practice of the living being baptized for, in the place of, or on behalf of the dead. Let me say this, hopefully it's being recorded so that I cannot be used against me in a court of law or any other place. I do not believe that Paul is teaching and using this as a defense of the resurrection, the practice of the living being baptized for, in the place of, or on behalf of the dead. Do you all understand that? Yes or no? All right, amen. So what is Paul saying then? Okay, what is Paul saying? Well, if we take, if we take the word huper and allow the other meanings of it, which instead of on behalf of are because of, or on account of, which it can mean and does mean throughout the scriptures, then we have three possible meanings for this verse, all of which keep us orthodox, and all of which keeps Paul's argument actually being a use of Christian baptism that is a good defense of the resurrection of the dead. And so let me give you three various ways in which this verse is true of Christian baptism and could be an argument for Paul's understanding. The first is this. There were particular dead Christians in Christ who will be raised, whose testimony was being used to bring new converts to faith and baptism. So instead of somebody living, being baptized on behalf of the dead, you have somebody living who was impacted by the life and testimony of someone who had already died in Christ. And because that person had already died in Christ and someone had heard their testimony of their faith, this living person comes to faith in Christ and enters baptism. That's one plausible possibility of Paul's argument if who pair means because of or on behalf of. Think about it this way. You are not a Christian and you are in a bookstore and you stumble into the Christian section and find no Christian books because there never is. But nevertheless, let's just say that you found one Christian book and it happened to be a biography of David Brainerd. You're an unbeliever and you buy that book and you read the biography of David Brainerd who is now dead, he's no longer with us. He is dead, he is in Christ and David Brainerd is going to be raised from the dead someday and you read the biography of David Brainerd, and as a result of the testimony of David Brainerd's life, you become a Christian and you get baptized. So it is the living getting baptized on behalf, not for, but on account of those who've already gone before and the testimony that they left behind. That's one plausible. The second plausible is that particular dead Christian family members or friends who will be raised. So you've had a dead family member die in Christ and they will be raised someday. And as a result of their testimony for Christ, you desire to spend eternity with them. You don't want to spend eternity apart from them. And so a desire to spend eternity 
in the resurrection with your dead family members or friends is used by the Lord to bring you to faith in Christ. And so you enter baptism and you enter the church so that someday you can spend eternity with your dead family members or your dead friends. That's, the Lord has used that a number of different times to save people who desire to be with those who are on the other side. Your grandmother died and someday her testimony worked back into your life and God used that to save you and bring you into the church. Or the third variation on this would be simply this. Those, okay, that there are those who have heard that the dead in Christ will be raised. You heard that, that the dead in Christ will be raised. And you want to be a part of that resurrection. And the only way to be a part of that resurrection is to repent and be baptized. So these are three ways in which we can understand that Paul might be using, and the Greek fits this, the context fits this, and it answers all of the mysteries of why Paul would use this in this way so that we could read the verse this way, okay? Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on account of or because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized because of them? If we read the verse that way, what it means is that there are people because of those who've gone before and died in Christ. And because of those who've gone before and died in Christ who will be raised, there are people now who have been influenced by that and affected by that testimony and affected by that life and affected by that death who are coming to the Christian faith now and are receiving baptism because of the effect that a now dead person had arcing back on their life. I think that's plausible, it's biblical, it's orthodox, it's sound and it fits Paul's argument that some people get converted that way. Some people get saved because of the influence that people who are now dead eventually have back on their lives and they come to faith in Christ. It fits the Greek, it fits the context, and it fits Paul's argument that why do some people do this? Well, they do this because there's a resurrection from the dead. That's why. Okay? That, and, that's, and, that, and that fits also with what Paul says about baptism because Paul inextricably ties baptism to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This fits, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter six. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so Paul himself takes up in Romans and links baptism to the death and resurrection of Christ and our union with the death and resurrection of Christ. And this fits perfectly with what Paul is saying here. So let me say it one more time in summary. I do not believe this verse is preaching that the living are being baptized on behalf of the dead. I believe that the living are being baptized because of the influence and the testimony of those who have died in Christ and will be raised. And that had an impact on them and God used that to bring them to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. You see how that can work, amen? It's work, it's plausible. Okay, good. And that of course leads us then to the fact that these people will be baptized as Paul is baptized into the death of Christ, which means this leads us to the second reason and the second defense that Paul has for the resurrection, and that is cruciform suffering. Look with me at verses 30 uh, and following. So Paul says, look, if the dead are not raised, then why are we have people coming to baptism because of those who've gone before? 
Secondly, if the dead are not raised, Paul gets very personal here. Then what am I doing? What am I doing as an apostle? There's a better life to live than the one I've got. There's an easier life than this. So Paul is very autobiographical here about a defense of the resurrection. Look at what he says. He says in verse 30, why are, if the, if the dead are not raised, why are we in danger every hour? I die every day. What do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Listen to what Paul is saying. Paul's second argument for the resurrection of the dead is this. If the dead are not raised, then why am I willing to give my back every day to the suffering of the gospel? If the dead are not raised, there is only one legitimate reason for getting out of bed in the morning. And that's to continue the party from the night before. Okay. Let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. Hear that, church. Paul's argument is, look, if the dead are not raised and death is the final word, if death is the final word, if all we have to look forward to is for our lives to peter out, is for our lives to die and then it's over, then we should live as full-orbed hedonists. Then we should simply, in the words of Bill and Ted, party on. Just party on and party on and party on. And when we wake up, party on. Let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. This is the logic of not having hope after death. This is why oftentimes our world is in the condition that it's in and people live the way that they do. There's this deep ache in their soul for hope. There's a deep ache in their soul. I think it was Sri, you and I were talking the other day. Who am I? Young people ask. Who am I? Why am I here? And where is it going? Those are the three existential questions people are asking today, especially young people. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? If there is no resurrection of the dead, the answer is it doesn't matter who you are and doesn't matter why you're here and it doesn't matter where it's going because the only thing that is is you're going to die someday. So between your life and your death, drink on, party on. That's the only answer. Live for the senses. Be the sensate creature that you think you are. That's what Paul says. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But see, we have a better hope. Paul had a better hope. But it was a hope that led to something. It led him into suffering. Listen to what Paul says. If the dead are not raised, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I want you to think about that. Every hour. Paul's life faced danger from without, danger from inside the church, and danger from inside himself. Every hour of his life. Don't you feel that way sometimes? 
Can I take another punch? Can I take another shot to the gut? Isn't enough, Lord, enough? Notice what Paul is linking. He's not only saying, why am I in danger every hour? But then he takes an oath by the preciousness of the Corinthian church. In verse 31, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm by the highest, the most, one of the most precious things to me, Paul says, is you, the Corinthian church. And I'm going to lift that up and I'm going to protest. I'm going to put, take an oath on that. And the oath I'm going to take on that is this. Church, listen to me. Corinthian church, listen to me. I die every day. Every day for the Apostle Paul is a groundhog day of death. Every day when Paul gets out of bed, he has to recommit. Listen, church. He has to recommit to dying again. Every day, Paul, what's in store for you? Death. Paul, what's in store for you tomorrow? I die daily. Paul, what's in store for you next hour? Suffering. Paul, what's on the horizon for you? More suffering. Paul, what do you got going today? I have to die today. Die to self today. And then he says in verse 32, what what do I gain? (laughs) What gain is there for me to give myself to this life, right? What kind of life is this? (laughs) Listen to this. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen. I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times at the hand of the Jews I received 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. He was not on a surfboard. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, he was not whitewater rafting. Danger from robbers, he was not in a movie. Danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers. For Demas, has left me having loved this present world. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all that, there is the daily pressure and anxiety upon me of the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? That is the life that Paul signed up for. Why would you live that life? Why would you repeatedly take blow after blow after blow after blow of suffering if there's no resurrection of the dead? The prophecy that hovers over Paul's life when Paul says to Ananias, go to Saul, go to Saul, right? He's like... Ain't nobody going to Saul. You don't leave alive. He's like, no, he's a chosen instrument of mine. 
I will show him how much he must suffer to be mine. Church, let me tell you right now, there's a lot of suffering in this room. There's a lot of suffering outside of this room. There's a lot of days in which we have a hard time moving forward, and we do. And the reason we do is because Jesus has been raised from the dead, amen? The reason we do is because you will be raised from the dead. And every single tear you shed, every single ache you bear, every single suffering that you receive, every single trial that you go through, all of it is gonna be gathered by the Lord someday. And it's going to be turned into the glory of your participation in the new heavens and the new earth. This momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory and Paul knew that. And the only reason why he was willing to go through that is because of the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is saying this, why are there people getting baptized because of people who've gone before and died in Christ? Well, the resurrection. Why is it that I every day die? Is because of the resurrection of the dead. And then Paul moves on and he talks for a few moments and I wanna just have a few moments left to talk about this. Paul then moves on and after defending the resurrection from the dead, after defending its truthfulness, Paul now moves on and he talks about the practice of resurrection life in the church, the impact that the resurrection of Jesus is to have in the life of the church, the life of the local church, the life of the gathered church. You see, we are to be a people who are a resurrection people. We are to be a resurrection community. We are to be a people who, where the life of God, the life of Christ is, is worked out here. It's on display here through our very life. You see, we're not only to hold it confessionally, we are to practically live out our union with Christ together as a people. But a people can quench the spirit, a people can grieve the spirit, and, and that dysfunction is what's happening here with the Corinthians. There was, there was something happening in where there was their dysfunction of not believing in the resurrection that some of them did not believe in. It was affecting the whole of the congregation in a leaven way, and it was affecting the way that they did life together as a church. And so Paul, the good pastor, wants to draw attention to the implications of what happens. Listen, not only if we deny the resurrection confessionally, but what happens if we deny the resurrection practically? If we don't allow the, what the resurrection means to define us as a church, you see, to be the kind of people in which the life of the Spirit moves among us together. And so Paul says this pastorally in chapter 15 and verse 33 and 34. And I, and I want you to follow with me here. You can be doctrinally sound and be a doofus. All right? And you can have a church that's doctrinally sound and be full of doofuses. Um, you just can be. We don't want to be that. I've got you covered in the doofus compartment. You guys don't have to be, okay? I'll take care of it. But my point, listen, there, there are things that can be done in the life of a church that we need to be waken, woken up from. 
Okay? And I want you to see this. Ways in which resurrection life can be choked out in a church. Verse 33, let's just work our way through this in closing. Verse 33, the first thing Paul says is, do not be deceived. Listen, everybody in this room who's in a chair or standing behind a pulpit, every one of us can be deceived. A church can be deceived, not just persons in a church, but an entire church can be deceived, Paul says. And it's oftentimes when we think we're impervious to it that we're most ready to be deceived. No one in this church, including your pastors, are above being deceived as a church. We are easily deceived. Listen, you know, this is what's happening in Corinth. Listen to me closely. You know you are on the road to deception when righteousness starts to feel odd and the world starts to feel at home. Can I say that again? You know and we know that we are on the road to deception when righteousness begins to feel odd and worldliness in the world begins to feel more at home. You see, this is what's happening here in Corinth. This is exactly what's happening. They're being deceived. And they're being deceived as we've all, if, you would have, if we would have gone through 1 Corinthians already, we would have seen all the ways in which righteousness seems to be alien to this dysfunctional church and worldliness seems to be their home. And Paul is calling them away from that. He's calling them to righteousness and he's calling them to holiness and to distinctness and away from compromise and away from being comfortable with the way the world is infiltrating the church. Listen, it's not the problem here is not the world. It's worldliness in the church. Paul said in chapter 5, I don't want you to go out of the world. How are people going to get saved? Your problem is that you guys as a church are way more worldly inside the church than you ought to be. And then he nails the place where that's easy. It's easier to drift from righteousness in the church and it's easier to drift into worldliness in groups. In groups than it is by yourself. Look at what he says. Do not be deceived. Bad company, not the rock group. I was listening to Bad Company earlier this week. They're actually pretty good company in terms of music, but... Um, Bad company ruins good morals. Don't be deceived. Bad company in the church ruins good morals. And that statement, bad company corrupts good morals, comes from a third century poet named Menander in his play Theus. And Paul is using that. I want us to think about this for a moment. Inside the church, <laughs> righteousness cannot start feeling alien to us. 
And worldliness cannot start feeling at home to us because if it is, we start becoming bad company. We start becoming the bad company. That bad company in the Greek means kind of a group. So in other words, not everybody in Corinth was in this. It's kind of a group thing. And this is any company that won't pull you closer to holiness. Any company in which getting close to sin becomes normal. And church, listen to me. For those of you sitting there in your self-righteous prigness going, oh, our family, we're not given to sexual sin. Do you gossip? Do you talk about people behind their back? Do you sit up on a perch and are you the master criticizer of everything in the universe? You're in this boat, okay? The, we're in this boat, not only if we're committing the bad sins, we're, yeah, no one gets it. We're in this boat if we're, we're committing what Jerry Bridges calls the comfortable sins. The ones that make us sound righteous, but actually reveal something else. See, the comfortable sins are the, are the most dangerous ones of all because we live in them like the frog in the kettle and gossip and slander and self-judgment and self-righteousness and looking down our nose at other people and always finding fault everywhere and all these kinds of things becomes in the group. It takes on a tyranny in a bad company group. And it can destroy a church. It can destroy this church. We say, oh, not solely church. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Or I can say it this way. Moral stupidity is contagious. Okay? Moral stupidity is contagious. And we're more susceptible to moral stupidity in crowds than we are by ourselves. You see, Proverbs 13, 20 says this, he who walks with the wise will be wise. He who walks with the wise will be wise. But a companion, somebody who breaks bread with fools, will be destroyed. Church, listen to me. Practical virtue is a team sport. We need each other to be holy. Practical vice is a team sport. It's easier to sin in groups. It's easier to give in to the comfortable sins in groups. And I'm just going to go right out and say this since it's resurrection morning. And if I get fired after this morning, oh well. Your youth, listen to me teenagers in this room and you parents of youth. If you think that this whole thing of bad company corrupts good morals, do not be deceived is true about everybody but you and your teenagers, your head's in the sand. Your head's in the sand. There is a power in teenage groups and your children are not Teflon. Your children are not above the fray. And that is why when your children enter the teenage years, you're helping them and guiding them according to righteousness is more important than when they were five. Not less. 
more important than when they were 10, not less. Because they're going to be pulled to make worldliness and as close to sin as we can. How close to the line can we get without crossing it is not the way to raise a child. Raising children means raising them in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. And we don't care what other people think. We don't care what the world thinks. We don't care what the cool people think. We don't care what the normal people think. The only thing that matters for Christian parents and for Christian youth and for Christian children is what Jesus Christ thinks. And we got to stop we got to stop trying to think it's okay. It's not. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. End of discussion. And it can happen in the church. You're not the one, and I'm not the one. So guess what? We have a responsibility because of the resurrection of Jesus to guard our hearts and to help guard the hearts of our children and youth. To guard our influences. Who's influencing you? Who's influencing you? Even in the church. And who's influencing your children? Guard your influences. Guard your heart. And guard your moral compass. Which way is the compass in your home and in this church and in our lives pointing? Is it pointing due north to righteousness? Is it starting to be pulled and moved in another direction because of the pureness, the power that lies in the group? You see, you say, wow, all of this is tied to the resurrection? According to Paul, it is. Paul flows right out of the resurrection into this kind of thing. That bad company corrupts good morals and chokes, can choke out the life of the church. And this is true for all of us. So what's the answer? Let's close it up. Verse 34, Paul lays out a few things. Number one, he says, wake up. Okay, wake up. First of all, just wake up. Wake up spiritually to the possibility of being deceived. Wake up spiritually to the implications of the resurrection and come out of your, uh, your spiritual hangover. Okay, come to your senses and start thinking rightly about these things. Due north, God's way, no compromise. Wake up. Secondly, okay, And by the way, if this was left without context, this would be a tough line, right? Uh, The next thing he says is, as is right, do not go on sinning. (laughs) Oops, what happens there? What is Paul talking about here? Uh, Just stop sinning, all of you right now. Ready? On three, stop sinning. One, two, three. No, can't do it. All right, you're already done. What's he mean here? He means stop sinning this way. He has a context. He means wake up. Come to your senses, look at the resurrection life, and stop sinning this way, okay? By practically denying resurrection life, by being deceived by bad manners, okay? And then thirdly, he just leaves it this way. I won't leave it this way. He says, I say this to your shame. (laughs) Yeah, try that on for size. Uh, Shame on you, I'm out, right? I mean, like, whoa, But I guess I ask the question this way. Do you ever feel shame anymore? Do we ever feel shame anymore? 
I hope you do. I hope you are able to say sometimes to your wife, please forgive me. I'm actually ashamed of what I just said to you. I'm ashamed of it. To your children, you know what, Jordan, please forgive me. I'm actually ashamed of the way that I spoke to you. To your parents, to one another in the church. Because let me close with this, church. (laughs) The only way in which shame can be covered by the shame coverer, Jesus Christ. And that's what he's come to do. The resurrection of the dead means you'll have to live in your shame. (laughs) But guess what? In order to have it covered, you gotta admit it. You can't, if you try to cover your shame yourself, it's uncovered. But if you put your shame out there for Christ to cover, if we as a church ask Christ to cover our shame, he will. And so my prayer for this sermon is that we will be that church that is not choked in resurrection life, that confessionally believing the resurrection, we would practically live out that life together. And as we live out that life together, it would dissolve the things that get in the way of the life of the Spirit moving through us, the resurrection life of Jesus, and that we would be that church that is, if, if it's true, has stopped these things, has had its shame covered, and actually has the rest in Christ that is found only in him on offer when people come to Soli Church, that they might find rest in Christ and rest among the people of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, take this word and seal it for your divine purposes for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.